Good morning and welcome to today's Strategic Insights Radio brought to you by Sterling Rose Consulting Corp. Sterling Rose Consulting Corp is a full-service business consulting firm that provides business plan creation and review, marketing plans, marketing implementation, process automation, accounting services, and now business technology strategy consulting and implementation services. Today we are honored to have the newest member of Sterling Rose Consulting Corp team and the co-host of Strategic Insights Radio, David Wilkins. David comes to Sterling Rhodes Consulting Corp from a long and distinguished business and entrepreneurial career working with companies such as Whitridge Associates, IBM, ENY, PricewaterhouseCoopers, among others, and Mike Rosenthal, attorney of law and shareholder in Wagner, Johnston, and Rosenthal, Rosenthal PC. Mike Rosenthal received uh, both his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Florida. He has been practicing law since 1980. Mike began his career as an assistant attorney general for the state of Georgia. Following his entry into private practice in 1984, Mike remained active in service to the state of Georgia, both in the governor's office of consumer affairs as a coordinator of special projects and as a special assistant attorney general. Mike's practice primarily involves the representation of franchise distribution and professional, uh, excuse me, professional and service industry clients, providing both day-to-day business counseling and advice. Mike is a member of the ABA's Forum on Franchising and the Georgia Bar's Franchise and Distribution Law section. A substantial majority of his time is devoted to representing franchisors and franchisees. Typical franchisor clients include startup franchisors, systems of 250 or fewer units. Mike prepares their franchise disclosure documents and state franchise registrations, as well as counsels them on the legal side of the franchise sales process franchisees compliance and all other matters typical franchisee clients ask mike to assist with everything from single unit fdd reviews corporate and leasing matters to advising multi-unit and multi-system franchisees operators with more complex structures mike and his firm also represent both franchisors and franchisees in resolving disputes through mediation arbitration in the and in the courts mike has represented innumerable startup companies but has many clients that he has represented since the 1980s. Mike particularly enjoys working with clients in the planning stages in order to assist them in growing and transitioning their businesses. Mike served seven years as an independent director for Inland Retail Real Estate Trust Incorporated, a public company which was sold in 2007 for $6.2 billion. Uh, Mike's law firm is engaged in a broad-based business and commercial law practice in Sandy Springs, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. The firm focuses, focuses its representation on privately held businesses. David, it's all you. Thank you, Trey, and thank you, Mike, for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. As Trey kind of in, uh, alluded to, there's really two sides to franchising. Uh, the first side is actually those people who have those businesses who are successful, like to grow, and they think that franchising might be a way to help grow those businesses. And then the other side are the people who are looking to get involved in a business or have a business of their own, and they look at franchising as a way to do that as opposed to starting something that's from scratch uh, on their own. So let's let's get started with the probably – I suspect it's probably the more complicated side of it, which is the franchisor. And, uh, you know, you tell me, what, what are the, the, the legal uh, ramifications and, and legal requirements for getting started? We have kind of a, 
as with so many things in the United States, we have a two-layered approach to franchise laws. There's federal law and there's state law. So at the federal level, which of course applies uh, everywhere, the Federal Trade Commission has a rule named, oddly, the Franchise Rule, and it is a disclosure rule. Uh, that, that means that before you can sell franchises in this country, you have to give this big, fat document that typically runs 100 pages or more, with, just filled with all kinds of information about your company, if you're selling franchises, and what um, the franchisee can expect if they buy a franchise, background about your corporate officers, uh, the contractual obligations of the parties, and then information about the franchise system. So how many units it has, how many they've gained, how many they've lost, financial information, and then lastly, copies of all the contracts the franchisee might be expected to sign. Then at the state level, there are 14 states, Georgia, where, where I am, is not one of them, where a seller of franchises is required to register with a state agency, and they may add on some additional requirements besides those that are found in the, the franchise rule at the federal level. So the process we go through uh, when a client comes to me and they want to franchise their, their business, uh, first of all, we talk about whether it's a good idea. And I probably run off far more prospective clients than I keep. Um, but uh, if they want to go forward, we draft all these documents for them. Uh, we start out by drafting a franchise agreement or contract with their franchisees because that really describes how the franchise system is going to work. And then once we've got that done, we prepare the rest of the franchise disclosure document. And a lot of what's in that, uh, it's called an FDD for short, a lot of what is in that is a, uh, it's a description of the legal terms that are in the contract. So first we draft the contract, then we describe it. Good. Now, what what really would be you know for those people who are thinking about it uh, you know you mentioned you the basically can talk people out of it if their if their business isn't really the right right for franchising what what do you you know somebody thinking about it what uh, what are those characteristics that would be something that they should be looking at well first of all they should have a profitable business and that may sound funny but I have people that approach me that aren't yet profitable in their business and they're already thinking about franchising which is fine if they get to profitability, but of course, why would I want to buy a franchise from you if you're not making money? The second is that they have systems in place uh, that allow uh, the franchisee to basically duplicate what the franchisor is doing. So I always give the example of the guy that has great barbecue joint, you know, Bubba. And uh, Bubba started out with one barbecue joint. Then he opened a second one and a third one. Then he wanted to franchise it. So to do that, really, he should have systems in place so that um, it's all spelled out. It's, it's put down in writing. This is how you open the store in the morning. This is how you make barbecue. This is how you hire employees. This is how you serve customers. So having all those systems in place, I think, is really critical. While it's not legally required, I think it's really, really helpful to have proven that your concept can be replicated. So if Bubba just had one barbecue joint, he hasn't really proven that, that's, that he can go beyond that, that he has, again, the systems, that he can deal with more than one unit, and um, that it's not an accident of location. Because if he opened a barbecue joint across the street from maybe a college campus or a big uh, General Motors plant or something, he might have a natural um, audience and, and a group of customers, but it doesn't mean that I'll be successful if I open it in a different type of location. So something that's uh, a process that's 
pretty repeatable is, is probably key to there. Yes. And um, most of my, my franchise work clients have done, at least in the loose sense, some analysis of the demographics that will support their franchisees business. So just as an example, um, I've got a, a franchisor that I represent that has a very unique uh, fitness studio concept that uses software to kind of help with the workout. And um, it's expensive. If you're a member of a studio, I believe the, the monthly membership fee is $349. So that obviously- That is pricey. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, they would tell you it's worth it. And I've done one workout and I was very sore, so it probably is. But um, you know, there's a limited demographic of people who can afford 350 bucks a month. And so they're not gonna be selling that typically for people to open one in, uh, say, a lower middle class neighborhood, but you might open a McDonald's in a lower middle class neighborhood. Um, that might work. Good. The um, you know you, when you were going through that list of all the things that uh, a franchiser has to, or pr prospective franchiser has to do to uh, actually get ready to be do franchising, uh, isn't there um, a, you know an easier way you know to get around that and you know, I've heard of the term licensing that's, that gets thrown around at times. Yes, potentially. Uh, franchising or a franchise by law is a defined term. And I always describe it as a three-legged stool. Under, under federal law, uh, you have to have a name, like a trademark, that's going to be associated with the business. The franchisee has to pay you money, uh, typically up front, but within the first six months. Uh, for the right to operate the business. And you have to, so those are two of the three legs. And the third is you have to either exercise substantial control over how they operate the franchise business, or you have to provide them with substantial assistance in getting started or in operating the business. Most franchisors do both of those, of course. So for something to be a license, what we have to do is we have to remove one of the legs of that stool to avoid the definition of being a franchise. And I and I always give this analogy, I'm sure everybody's heard it, uh, and you've heard the old story of, but if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it flies like a duck, it probably is a duck. Mm -hmm. and that's franchise. So we can call it whatever we want. You know, We can call it a mere license, but if it fits the legal definition, it's going to be a franchise. And if you as a seller fail to follow the law, uh, there are consequences to that. You can be fined heavily by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, there may be private rights of action, not under federal law, but under state laws. And then if you're in one of those 14 states, uh, they, there are criminal consequences in many of them. You can be a felon for selling a franchise without registering. So, um, so just to give you the example um, of a license that's not a franchise, it might be something where um, I let you use my name, my trademark, and I and you pay me a fee for that, but I don't really give you much help, and I don't really manage what you do. So if it was a restaurant, I might say, here's the recipes, good luck, and okay. then we're done. Yeah. So it's really, in that respect, it comes down to uh, the control the amount of process that's described that you have to follow or lack thereof as it were and on the license side and and just uh, the ability to to be your do your own thing sounds like yes and and if you've got something you've spent a lot of time creating 
you know, you have a successful business model. The big issue to me in not having control and not giving a lot of help to your licensees or franchisees is protection of your brand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the example I gave you is here's the recipes for the barbecue. Good luck. My concern, if it's my name, if I'm Bubba, is I don't want you not following the recipes. I don't want you buying cheaper products and putting them in and then damaging the brand or not cleaning the restrooms once an hour um, or doing any number of things that could impact the brand or, or even worse. If, if you, for example, um, serve tainted products because you're cheaping out and you want to make sure you used up the spoiled uh, lettuce that you had from a week ago and somebody gets sick and there's a story in the, on the internet about how somebody got sick and died eating at Bubba's, that's probably going to tarnish my brand pretty badly. Yes. Yes. I've heard some of those stories myself. Um, so you, you, know, you, you alluded to the, the, the downsides of particularly ha not having a, uh, a proper FDD or financial disclosure document or not registering the states. I mean, what, what's, uh, you know, what are, what's the real, real penalties there? Really what we see are two, um, and, and, you know, not to criticize the Federal Trade Commission, they've published this rule and it's out there, but they don't have the staff to enforce it. They, they just don't. Um, so you're not really at risk, in my view, of being sued, having an administrative proceeding brought against you by the, the FTC. The risks are really, if you're selling in a registration state, a lot of these state agencies are very aggressive in pursuing violators. Um, and then on the private level, if somebody buys a franchise from you and you haven't followed the law, typically there is some way um, that they can use that failure to get uh, what we typically call a rescission. So basically they, they're going to say, I want my money back. And you're going to be forced to give them back all of the money that they've paid to you, which doesn't sound that bad, but um, if you've already spent the money, that's pretty onerous. And also in some states, they not only have the right to get their money back that, they've, that uh, they have paid to you, they also have the right to recover any other money that they've lost. So if they bought a Bubba's barbecue and they spent $300,000 to build out the restaurant and they spent another $100,000 for staff, advertising and business insurance and overhead, they can come to you and say, hey, Dave, I want all of that back. And for most people, if somebody came to you and said, you owe me, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars that would put them out of business. Yeah. Most franchisors have already spent that money, uh, helping to continue to grow their business. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And I think this is a good time to take a short break. Are you thinking about starting a business? Does your business need a loan or investors? Are you ready to grow and succeed? then you need to call Sterling Rose Consulting Corp. Call Sterling Rose Consulting Corp at 470-238-9097 for more information or to schedule your free business consultation. Well, welcome back to Strategic Insights Radio. And today we are speaking with Michael Rosenthal, who is a franchise attorney. Great. So, we were talking, uh, Mike, about uh, about the franchisor, and I think this is one that uh, you know is a good time to transition to the other side of the coin, which is the franchisee. And I think there's one issue that seems to probably affect potentially on both sides because there seems to be a lot of movement by the uh, um, federal government 
in the area of contract employees or franchisees, whether they're actually considered contractors or employees? Um, This is really complex, evolving landscape. Um, And um, over the last few years, we've seen a few cases where certain types of franchisees uh, the, the door has been opened by some courts to say, you're really not a franchisee, you're really an employee for certain purposes. So for example, um, this whole line of cases started with somebody in Massachusetts who was trying to, as I understand it, make a, or file a workers' compensation claim. And they were saying, I really wasn't a franchisee, I was an employee. As we move from what I'll call the low end of the franchise food chain on up to the bigger fish, that becomes a harder argument to make. But um, the the cases started with people who were doing commercial cleaning, contract cleaning, and they were buying franchises for very modest amounts, typically a few thousand dollars, maybe no more than $10,000. And all of their work was coming through their franchisor. So the argument was, I really work for you. And um, it was very state law specific. So it, it, all I can suggest is um, if you're thinking about going into franchising, just to be aware of this. And uh, certainly we feel like we can help clients steer clear of that minefield. Uh, it's just setting up things properly and making sure that the uh, franchisees really are independent. You're not exercising so much control over how they do the minutia of things that the argument becomes that they're an employee. Okay. I'm thinking about buying a franchise because I want to get into uh, owning my own business. What are the what are the key things I really need to be looking for, particularly because I know I'm going to hear about this financial disclosure document and what do I need to do with it? Okay. Um, Well, for starters, you should read the FDD and that may sound basic, but I've had many clients call me and. They seem to be under the impression that they're paying me as a lawyer to read it, and therefore they're relieved of the responsibility for knowing what's in there. It's not like there's going to be a test after you read it, but you should understand it. And and if you don't understand it, you should reach out to a professional, whether that's a lawyer or an accountant, if that's appropriate, to make sure you understand how does this thing work. Um, the key things that I think you should do, of course, and and is do some due diligence. So. Uh, that typically involves calling existing franchisees in the system, as many as you can, and finding out um, if they've been happy with their purchase. Has the franchisor supported them? Did they get good training? Are they making money? Will they share their financial information with you? You should also reach out to any failed franchisees, because most systems have some, and um, find out if they'll talk to you, what went wrong from their perspective? Was it something nobody likes to admit that they made a mistake or they but, you know, sometimes it's a problem with the franchisor. Sometimes it's a problem with the franchisee. So you should be asking those questions. Um, we always look at, um, within that franchise disclosure document, the track record of success or failure, which you can kind of see in item 20. It just shows how many units have been added over the last few years, how many have been lost. And it gives you some description of why they've come or gone. And then lastly, um, every FDD has to have uh, financial information about the franchise award. You should take a close look at that. At least gives you some sense of how well funded they are. Are they a startup? Have they made money? Are they losing money? And occasionally, um, and I'm not an accountant, 
I know that's your background. Yes. Um, if you look at the footnotes, so the audited financial statements that are attached to the FDD, you can find some interesting information. So, you know, you might learn that the company's paying for the owner's Mercedes uh, and that there's a long-term lease on it, which, which is fine. I mean, if the company makes money, that's great. If the company's losing money and the franchisor's owner is driving a Mercedes, you might question whether that's the type of person you want to be in business with. Right, right. So what, is it, uh, what does it typically cost to have, uh, have an FDD reviewed by an attorney? Um, it's going to depend, of course, on the size of the document. Some of them run less than 100 pages. So some of them are over 600 pages. But um, we typically charge between $1,000 and $1,500 for most reviews. If it's a more complex arrangement, such as um, you're buying the right to develop multiple units, it might be a little bit more because usually the documentation is longer. Uh, if the document is poorly drafted, so you know, you're being presented with something that's not well drafted, it usually costs a little bit more because I'm gonna have more comments on it. Um, but that, that give you an idea. It's not that expensive when you consider that you're typically investing uh, six figures or more to me, that's money well spent. It's sort of like changing the oil in your car. Right, right. Now, when, because I, mean, I understand for the most part that the FDDs and the uh, and the franchise agreements are pretty well set, uh, you know, for, keep them standard for all their their franchisees. Uh, you know, what what purpose is there really for having that review if there's really not much chance to uh, to negotiate the terms? That's a good question. Uh, well, first of all. Franchise, franchises tend to operate a little differently than a lot of other businesses. So I think having a lawyer look at it and at least say, this is standard for franchises and here's some stuff you ought to know about. So at least you're making an informed decision and you understand certain things and how they work. In smaller franchise systems or ones that are perhaps new geographically to the area that you're in, sometimes we can negotiate a few tweaks and things. So that's sometimes of value. So, so as an example, in Atlanta, within the city of Atlanta, the permitting process to build a retail space is very slow. It's just the way it works, like it or not. And typically, I'll suggest to clients that they ask the franchisor up front for some additional time because what's in the franchise agreement often isn't really, it doesn't take into account the fact that the city of Atlanta may take three months longer than getting a permit in a small town. Um, and, and lastly, it doesn't happen often, but a couple of times a year, I'll just say to a client, oh my gosh, don't do this. You know, that's their decision, not mine, but I'll make a strong recommendation based on something that I found in the FDD that I just think is bad or wrong. At least they have that opinion, you know, and they can make the decision, of course. It's their, it's their life and it's their money. I'm just here to give them some advice. Why, and I know you specialize in franchise law, but what makes uh, a franchise lawyer any different than, say, uh, my neighbor who's, a, who's a, you know, a good lawyer, has been to, you know, prestigious law school like Duke, and uh, just letting him take a look at it. Duke's a great law school, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like so many things in the modern world. I, I always liken this to, um, you know, if, if my wife was pregnant, and we were going to have a baby, I wouldn't want my ear, nose, and throat doctor delivering the baby. Now, you know, my ear, nose, and throat doctor went to medical school and probably did, you know, six weeks rotation in obstetrics while she was in medical school, but it doesn't mean she remembers how to do it. 
Um, so it, it is a subspecialty or a specialized area of practice. Our contracts in the franchise world, frankly, tend to be very one-sided. They tend to really favor the franchisor, mainly because we're trying to, franchisors are trying to protect their brand for the good of everybody in the system. They want to have enough control so that bad franchisee doesn't ruin it for everybody. Um, we're back to the, you know, thou shalt not serve food with spoiled lettuce. You want to have those controls. So someone who's not a franchise lawyer tends to look at franchise agreements, in my experience, and they want to come up with an eight or 10-page memo of requested changes. And I don't know of any franchisors that are going to agree to that. So you're paying somebody a lot of money to do work that's not going to accomplish anything. And, and I think a franchise lawyer typically knows what is possible, what can be negotiated, and what can't. So I think that's helpful. And, and lastly, in states that have state registrations, again, a franchise lawyer is going to be more familiar with what those laws are, what you can and can't uh, expect as a result, what protections you have as a franchisee. Yeah, that's, and I think that the point that you made about uh, the, the perception of a, a franchise agreement being one-sided, favoring the franchisor, um, you know, having looked at a number of franchise agreements over, over years, I certainly get that impression. But that's not all bad, though, is it? I mean, well, again, I, I don't think it's all bad. And I, I represent both sides, franchisors and franchisees. To the extent that it has to be an onerous agreement to give the franchisor the ability to protect the brand, I think it's a very good thing. You wouldn't want to be in a system. The franchisor didn't have the ability, frankly, to punt a, a bad franchisee out. And I've seen lots of behaviors by franchisees anger and upset their neighboring franchisees in another territory. So for an example, if it's a sales-oriented business and there are territorial restrictions on where you can sell and you're the guy in the next territory over is poaching into your territory, you want the franchisor to have the contractual right to come in and say, hey, cut that out. If the contract isn't strongly drafted and they don't have that right, you're being poached by your neighbor, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And that's very frustrating. So it's not all one-sided in the sense that the benefit just goes to the franchisor. And as I said, a lot of what you're buying with certainly existing uh, strong franchise brands is the brand. That is why people go in there. Whether you like McDonald's or not, when you go in one, you pretty much know what you're going to get. And um, that's obviously worked really well for them over the last 50 years. So really, if you think of a, somebody who's looking at a franchise versus a, the the true entrepreneur, uh, the, the entrepreneur is probably freewheeling, looking to do his own thing, her own thing in, in terms of developing a business. But with a franchise, you re have to recognize that you've got to follow the rules or there's, there's consequences. Absolutely. And um, candidly, there are some people, I might be one of them, that don't like to follow rules. Um, I always give the example of my dad um, who to this day says the worst two years of his life was when he was in the army as he doesn't like to follow rules and he doesn't like people telling him what to do, which isn't to say that he's a lawbreaker or anything. Um, but he was always an entrepreneur and, uh, he probably would not have been a highly functional franchisee in any system because at some point he would have started rebelling over things that other people might be willing to accept. Okay, great. So what kind of trends do you see in the franchise uh, development areas and, and franchise world in general? Um, I think the franchise world kind of follows what's going on in the outside world. So uh, first of all, 
things are getting bigger. <laughs> Systems are getting bigger. So we're saying there used to be a big eight accounting firms. Now there's a big four. So there's a lot of consolidation within the industry. So the trend in the franchise world is we're seeing more multi-unit franchisees, people that own more than one unit. And we're seeing outside investors come in, buy groups of franchises or open groups of franchises. So we see private equity firms, these quirky little things called family offices. So wealthy families that have money to invest will come in and buy multiple units. And we see them also buying them in multiple chains. So you might have a private equity firm that owns a bunch of exercise studios and at the same time, a bunch of restaurants in, in a whole different system. And then from a, I guess, a brand perspective, what we're seeing is franchising follows the things that are going on demographically in our world. So we're seeing, for example, a lot of senior-based franchises right now because in the U.S., our population is getting older and there's a lot of need. there are a lot of needs that seniors have and people are rushing out to meet those needs in, in franchises. Um, same thing with the food world. We're kind of evolving, I think, a little bit from quick service to fast casual because that seems to be what people want and people are demanding a different type of food, perhaps a higher quality food, more organic food. Uh, so those are the trends that we see typically follow what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, Mike, this has been a, a great conversation on, on, uh, on franchising, and I really do appreciate your time. I really appreciate the uh, invitation and the opportunity to chat. All right. Trey? Thank you, David and Mike. Uh, this was Strategic Insights Radio discussing the franchise development and law and why it is important to have proper representation in place. For more information about Michael Rosenthal and David Wilkins, Sterling Rose Consulting Corp., or the Franchise Law or FDD's contact, contact Sterling Rose Consulting Corp. at 470-238-9097 or visit www.sterlingroseconsultingcorp.com.